You are listening to episode 57 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. So here it is, folks. It was bound to happen one of these days. In Film We Trust has finally got round to covering an animated film, and not just any animated film. We're deep diving, analysing, contextualising, and any other eyesing you can think of for Satoshi Kon's Pitch Perfect, Hitchcockian anime, Perfect Blue. Thrillingly enthralling and imaginatively influential, Perfect Blue would leave its fingerprints over future Hollywood classics. But what is the genesis for Perfect Blue? Where did this movie with little hope spring from, and why is it so important to the cultural zeitgeist of now? Well, stay tuned as we try to decipher the true importance and legacy of 1997's Perfect Blue. When I lived in China, when I was an English teacher over there, being over there gave me the opportunity to visit countries I wouldn't necessarily have visited before, because you know how you're closer geographically? So I went to South Korea, I went to the Philippines, I went to Nepal, and I got to go to Taiwan. One country that I never got to visit, though, was Japan, and I really, really wanted to, but this was late 2019, early 2022, before the whole world shut down, so wasn't able to do it, unfortunately. You did get to go to, was it Cambodia and Vietnam? I did Cambodia See, and Vietnam. See, there are two countries I'd like to go to. You never went to Japan. See, Japan's a country I'd really love to go. Mm-hmm. I would like to experience that culture. It seems like consumerism times 10. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, post-war... It took the American influence and ran with it. Mm-hmm. And it's went from, you know, this samurai culture to this exclusively consumerist culture. And this is what, you know, Yokio Mishima, the, the, the great author, the subject of the Paul Schrader film, was rallying against. He was seeing this changing of Japan, so to speak. And I think that's becoming evident. It, it, it's almost like America on steroids, the way it's consumers culture it's video game culture it's you know anime culture etc etc and i don't know if that's good i don't know if that's ill i don't really have a strong judgment of it Mm. but it has definitely changed there was like a cultural explosion like post-war and everything came about quickly like they show images of japan after the war and then they show it like 40 years later and it's advanced like no other place and the culture advanced as well quickly we talk about all our technology and cartoons so many of them come from japan like it's an incredible recovery to the point now where people are aping japanese media well even if you look at you know we're saying about this american influence one of the top sports in japan baseball yeah (laughs) That wouldn't have came about if it wasn't for World War Two. No, like, would you associate baseball with any country other than America? I mean, countries Cuba, like, Cuba, 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 maybe. Cuba? I mean, sports like football, for example, are very universal. Can you remember? I'm sure there's a story, and I'm sure it's quite factual. Did Fidel Castro? He was a big baseball fan. Castro, I, I don't remember hearing about that. Yeah, and I th- I'm sure he tried out for an American baseball team. Really? Is I'm a, sure that's a thing. Is that, like, sure how, is that thing. like how Kim Jong Un was a big uh, basketball fan because of Dennis Rodman? How dare you compare <laughs> the two? Very strange cultural crossovers. Yeah, yeah. But we're talking about a country here that has a very rich history and has a very rich modern contemporary culture there are so many things so many icons and images that you'd immediately associate it with it's very it has a very strong sense of identity i think i think a lot of people like that would you almost say japan is at the cultural avant-garde i think i'm not saying they're pushing the envelope but technology wise consumerism wise 
it's a culture that is, you know, gone head tail into that. Mm. I mean, if you think about all the big technology giants, like you've got Sony, Hitachi, a lot of the car manufacturers like Toyota and Mitsubishi, Nissan, they're all Japanese. So growing up, we would have seen made in Japan everywhere. And you know what? They're mm-hmm. always fucking reliable. They are, exactly, yeah. Great manufacturing. Yeah, you think of cars, the two countries that you would associate with being the most reliable, Japan and Germany. What about those Volvo? The- <laughs> what about Volvo? <laughs> Volvo, well, Sweden as yeah. well, I guess, yeah. But those are the two stalwarts in terms of reliable automation. Are you saying Reynolds not quite reliable? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just not saying it's a byword for quality. <laughs> Do we still manufacture anything out of Curiosity? Uh, Vauxhall was ours, although I'm not sure that's around anymore. Yeah, that's very I don't know, I'm sure someone did a programme recently saying, in Britain we produce more than we think, because we are used to seeing made in another country in all of our labels. Triumph. Triumph, yeah, Triumph Norton. is one of them. Noble, Austin, Noble Austin the car Martin. company. Yeah, so the only problem is nobody can afford them. Yeah, but we do still produce a lot. Yeah. But with Japan, it has come about very quickly post-war. They have done fantastically in terms of their pop culture. And they also produce great films, Wade. Do produce some fantastic now, films. Now, there is a little conflict. We are covering an animated Japanese film, quote-unquote anime, right? Yeah. But I wouldn't say we have the strongest knowledge of anime. I think, for both of us, I think you were more into Pokemon than I was. I was. I was very into, heavily into Pokemon. I think I was into it for a hot minute when it was like <laughs> popular when I was 10 years old. Yes. And then I never thought about it again. I was never a Dragon Ball Z guy. No, never. I wasn't Dragon Ball Z either. I did, not- I did Pokemon and then I did Digimon. And then after that, really not a lot of anime series. What the hell's the difference between Digimon and Pokemon? It was very similar. I think Digimon was really kind of riding the coattails of Pokemon. So it's not the same company? No, I don't don't think it's the same company. The animation style is kind of different. It's... It does feel very similar. You could kind of lump them together. Now, saying this, saying this, Wade, I'm going to highlight it because people are thinking, yeah, but... (laughs) We've covered Tsukamoto's Tetsuo. Tetsuo the Iron Man. I love that film. Great film. I am a big Japanese genre fan. This goes for South Korea also. Asians make great genre cinema. Now, J-horror is one of my favorite horror subgenres. If you want to call it subgenre. Ringu, The Ring. Juon, The Grudge. Audition. Dark Water. Takeshi Miike. We've got all these great filmmakers. Now... I want to put this to you, because I know uh, on my recommendation, you recently, somewhat recently, watched this film, Tsukamoto, from Tetsuo. You watched his Kotoko film. Yeah. It's a psychological horror film, and I think that somewhat ties into this film, Perfect Blue. Mm. Now, I know you weren't enthralled with it. Mm. I absolutely love that film. I love psychological horror, whether it's Black Swan, tie in, Mm -hmm. whether it is, you know, any psychological horror, I am on board. I love that genre of horror. Mm -hmm. Why did you not, why were you not enveloped in Kotoko like some of us were? I'm thinking there was a kind of detachment for me earlier on because in Kotoko, the idea is the lead character has this kind of split from reality. She's not really sure if it's real or if it's not. I generally like those stories, but for some reason, the fact it was introduced very early on made me think, I don't think a lot of this is actually going to be real. I like her in films when it kind of gradually develops like in Perfect Blue. Yep. So for me, I think that was the element. Also, the director himself is in the film, and he plays yeah. he plays a guy who the lead card essentially beats up over and over again. I'm like, why does this guy keep coming Wait, back? Sukumoto <laughs> is in most of his films. Yes. I think he's one of the leads in Tokyo <laughs> Fist, yeah, which he, is another great film. And he was in Tetsuo, but again, very heavy makeup, so it's very hard to identify. His, his cameos are a bit larger than Hitchcock. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Hitchcock's were cameos. He's kind of a yeah. he has a cameo in the sense that M Night Shyamalan does, where he inserts himself as a character, not a cameo. You would have Hitchcock waiting for a bus. You'd have him on a bus. You'd have him waiting outside a building. Those were cameos. These are like self inserts into the film. Now, Perfect Blue is in the anime genre. It's not a genre. It's a medium. Okay, yeah. I correct myself. But would you say that even though this is an anime? Would you say it is closely more resembling J-horror in many aspects? I think it is, yeah. Some people actually said, uh, when I was wa- I was actually watching the US trailer for this film, which incidentally is so American. I, you know, like extremely American voice, like in a world where nothing is real. It even has a voiceover like that. Because some people think it actually spoils the film. In a sense, I think it does. Should we play that trailer? Yeah, I think we Let's should. Let's play it. a pop star. This is Mima's last performance with Cham. Who desired to become an actress. I really hope that I can entertain you just the same as an actress. But sometimes, aspirations can be deadly. I'm always watching Mima's room. In the world of make-believe. This is when Mima proves herself. The price of fame. Don't worry, Mima, it'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence is lost. Dreams become nightmares. And privacy no longer exists. Where everything you do can be seen by everyone. And those you trust are really those you should fear. Your life no longer belongs to you. Excuse me. Manga Entertainment presents Satoshi Khan's animated psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? It, it, it kind of it spoils the trailer. You kinda, watch that trailer, you know, oh, I know what's going it, to... It's cr- somebody close to you. That is a criticism leveled at a lot of modern trailers yeah. as well. They say they give too much away. But somebody said, with Perfect Blue, they said, if Hitchcock directed a Disney film, this was more like what you Wayne, would get. Wayne, yeah. I've got that quote. It, do you know who that is by? It was uh, Roger Corman. It was Roger Corman. <laughs> the great if, Roger Corman. If Hitchcock had directed a Disney film, this would be the result. Yeah, I, I can think, see that. I can see that. I, I think there was criticism. Criticism, this should have been a live action horror. I like how they went the animated route because there are different things yep, yep. you can do with that, but it does lean more into that J horror element, which is like you said in things like Ringu on Audition, how European films bring a very European sensibility. Yep. Same with Japanese films, mm-hmm. this very Japanese sensibility. They're a lot more brutal in a way. There's a kind of renaissance with them, like with Korean films. You think of Train to Busan's. Great you film. Think, you think Bong Joon Ho's kind of films, yep. those films that are experiencing a renaissance. And it's great to see this international cinema doing so well which i love i love when each country each region of the world has their own particular style you don't want homogenization within cinema you want to be able to traverse different territories and you see something new for the first time and i know the language barrier puts people off but as as june ho said himself he said if you can get past that install subtitle on the screen you'll find a whole new world of great cinema and you will now 
Pokemon's your avenue into anime. <laughs> yeah. Is there any actual anime apart from Perfect Blue mm. that you are into? I've got to say, I did like Death Note. I didn't watch Death Note. That was a TV series. Yeah. And I did like the 80s film Akira. Yeah. It's been a long time since I I've seen that, Akira. I thought that was quite interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, has a character or something called Tetsuo. Yeah, interestingly. One film I really did like, an anime I very much gravitated towards, was Grave of the Fireflies, which is... Is that Studio in- Ghibli film? Yes, it is actually. It is, yeah. yeah, Hayao Miyazaki. It's made in kind of towards the end of the Second World War, and it's it's essentially a family story about a boy who's trying to look after his sister while the war is going on. It's the war is like in the background. It's a great film. It's more of a survival film. It's not kind of light toned down. I know it's famously in a very much an anti-war film. It is very yeah, yeah. well. It depends on who you ask, because the, direct, oh. the director says it's not anti-war or pro-war. It's just a film taking place during the war. Is that the same way as <laughs> Satoshi Kon, the director of this film, will say this film is not anti-idol culture? Which, when you watch <laughs> the film, it's really hard, because yeah. I, I watched it today for the third time. I don't know how you can really watch you know the what? film and say it's not anti-yes. It's my third time as well. That was your third time it as well? Th- third time. Because I don't know how you can watch it and say it's not anti-idol. Yeah. But with Grave of the Fireflies, you have these films that show the horrible destruction of war, yeah. how it tears people apart, destroys countries. Hard to say it's not anti-war. Though you have made the point, it's hard to have an anti-war film, because movies are positioned as entertainment we have stated this position how can you make an anti-war film if it is inherently entertaining Mm. now coppola recently has flipped on this you know how for years it was propositioned that apocalypse now was an anti-war film yes coppola now says no i wasn't making an anti-war film honestly i don't ever i didn't ever see it as an anti-war film what do you think it is? I see it as the kind of descent into madness. Maybe you could say it's an anti-war film, but for me, the war being on is kind of incidental. The idea is the whole travelling down the river, because it's based on Heart of Darkness Joseph by Joseph Conrad, Conrad yeah. which obviously had a African colonial setting, yeah. but a similar thing. This drift down the river was a drift into madness and insanity. So for me, the war being in the background was almost incidental. In many ways, would you say Apocalypse Now is a psychological horror that takes... In the background, there's a war raging, but really it's a psychological study. I think I would, yeah. It's yeah. Sci- the psychological elements are always what interests me the most in that film. But what about this film? This is a 1997 release, directed mm. by Satoshi Kon. Yeah. It's adapted from Perfect Blue, The Complete Metamorphosis, by Yoshihaku Tetsu. I mm, think, I think that's the name, yeah. yeah it's, it seems similar. Mm. Now, this was originally made as a OVA. Now... For people who aren't familiar with that, an OVA is an original video animation. Mm-hmm. So in Japanese culture, that essentially means a straight-to-video animation film. What we call a straight-to-video, no, or like maybe video on demand now. Right. But near when they were completing this film, near when they were finishing it, it was only upgraded then to a cinematic film. Only then, only then. So this was in many ways lucky for Satoshi Kon, the director, because he had never directed before. And this is why he got this job, in a sense, because there wasn't much riding on it. There wasn't much expectation. They were like, look, this is going straight to video. Here, have have your go here. You had pre- He had previously worked on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is a big anime. Um, I've heard of that, yeah. Big franchise, big anime experience. I'm not familiar either. So because of his unfamiliarity, because of this film's low expectations, he got this job. 
and it was written by a guy called uh, Sadyuki Murai. This was actually his first screenwriting credit. He's been very prolific since. It's mostly in animated films, as far as I can see, but he has written a lot since then. And we talk about artistic license adapting from the book. The book is quite different in a lot of ways. Like, a lot of the central plot, a lot of the psychological elements weren't even there. It had more of a for lack of a better term, like a kind of sexual slant. It was a lot more sexually explicit, but that was a really toned down for the film version. Well, the film and the novel differ very greatly. Within the novel, there is no film within a film. Hmm. There is no blurring of reality, and imagination is also not in the novel. Them things aren't present. But, but the author of the novel, he stated to Con Luke, because it was... A, Originally, there was a, a first draft of this screenplay, which Con wasn't involved with. And he was like, no, I'm not interested in that. It's too much science alarms. It's too much basic instinct. Con wasn't a fan of horror films, genre cinema, so to speak. So he said, look, I'm not making that film. So the original author of Perfect Blue, Complete Mor Metamorphosis, gave him this ultimatum. He said, look, right, you can make the film you want to make, but there are three conditions for Con. He says, keep the lead a B-grade idol. Mm-hmm. She has a stalker, and three, it's a horror film. He had to stick to those three principles, but within those three principles, he could change the story as he saw fit. And the movies you mentioned earlier, Con said he didn't want to make a film about what he called a crazed killer, because you mentioned films before. You have like films like Seven, Basic Instinct, Sounds of Lambs, all great films. Films we love, yeah. Films we love, all 90s films. Yep. But he didn't want to do that. He said, he says, that genre... Uh, it, pursue how perverted or crazy the killer was. I wanted to focus on how the inner world of the protagonist, the victim, is broken down by being targeted. So while those movies were more kind of focused on the killer and their actions, he wanted his to be focused more on the victim and the psychology of the victim and how that changes because of the events of the story. Well, his preoccupation, and, he, and this is a quote from he said, what he thinks this film is, he says, this film is a film of inner turmoil and how they become broken by the actions of the stalker. That's his premise for this film. It's not about the bloodshed, because originally as the first draft is much more of a splatter film, much more of a gore film, much more of a genre film. But he wanted to, you know, drill in on that aspect of the film. Because it's not really a bloody film at all, if you think about it. There are a few scenes where you have some um, some blood. I think that's worked in with the play within the play, which you mentioned is not in the book, but is in the film. But generally speaking, it's a very bloodless film. It's a psychological film, the kind of psychological deep dive into the lead, which are the kind of films, I think we have probably the most fun talking about films like this. I love a psychological deep dive. I think they stand up to most because there is you're free to interpret what they mean. It's mm. not just plot. You know, there's some films, you know, it's like we, we're getting from A to Z. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's twists and there's turns, but they tell you everything that a film encompasses. Whereas a film like this, there's ambiguity, there's mystique, there's intrigue. Even once you've finished it on the third viewing, like mm -hmm. both of us, you're still not sure which is reality, which is fantasy. And that makes you keep coming back for more. It brings you back for more. And this film, above all, Wayne... It's, in a, it's a visual feast. Mm. And this is because Satoshi Kon, the director, he started out as a painter. He went to university for painting, illustrated, he even worked as a manga artist. Yeah. And he states, look, he visualizes the film as a series of drawings before production even starts. And in a way, this is very similar to how Hitchcock would work. A meticulous storyboarder they both were. And I think in many ways, as you know, we quoted Roger Corman before, if Hitchcock made a Disney film, this is how it would turn out. It's a very Hitchcocky in many ways, visually, thematically, very much. 
I know that different directors have different opinions on how much storyboard to use. I knew some are more instinctual, some like to storyboard everything out beforehand, but when you're talking about a medium like, well, something like animation, and because the director was a manga artist, it's essentially a series of drawings anyway. So it makes sense that we draw it out, and I like that about anime, how it can give you that very vivid colours. Now, you say vivid colours, and I think this is a funny little note within this film. It's just like, some people are like, look, what does perfect blue mean? Mm. People, some people may know. I'm not actually sure I know. Now, within at the end of this film, thematically, she leaves a hospital mm-hmm. when she's gone through all this crisis, Wayne. She looks to the sky, and when she sees the sky, it is a perfect blue. There's not a cloud in sight. It's perfectly blue, as the title suggests. And this is representative of her meanings, meaning her troubles are over. <laughs> you know, do you know what I find funny? Yeah. Director of this film, right? Now he's gone on record. He's never he's never read the novel. He's not interested in reading the novel. And Con states, the director of this film states, to be honest, I used it because it was the title of the original novel. This we're talking about the novel. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the title of the novel. I presume the words have some significance, <laughs> but as I changed the story and probably the subject as well, I guess the meaning was lost. I can only guess because I didn't read the novel. <laughs> I guess so. If you were to say to me thing like something like perfect blue, you'd think of the sky, you'd think of water. I would think of the word I would think of would be purity. I which, think so. Which I think is more of an element in the book. The clear s- conscience. Clear conscience yep. as well, but the purity of the body and the soul, which is more of an element of the novel. Now, can I bring this to you? Yeah. If you're right, you may not like the the original material. Yeah. You might not be interested. You might want to change it X Y Z. But as an artist of you're adapting this work, would you not read it out of curiosity to see what you're adapting? Well, you think that would be the minimum requirement. <laughs> if you're going to adapt a book, the least you could do is read the book because that's how a lot of these films come about is the director reads the book at some point and they're captivated by it and they want to bring it to the screen. But the fact he was given a very kind of vague outline saying, right, you have to do A, B and C. Other than that, you can do what you wanted. Maybe that meant he thought to himself, okay, I don't really need to read the novel. I already have a picture in my head of what I want to do anyway. One would assume you'd just <laughs> read it. I mean, it's not a huge novel. I think it's a few hundred pages. I think maybe he was just busy that day. He could have, he, he could have read it in a few days. <laughs> but you think, how would the film have turned out if he had that? Would he have incorporated more elements of the book into the film? That makes an interesting point. Mm. Because he wasn't overly familiar with the source material, and he was thinking it from a visual artist, we said he went to university for illustration, painting, etc. Does that mean the, the film becomes more interesting because he deviates from the interpretation that the novel puts forth? I think it means we get more of his mindset rather than the author's because he doesn't feel constrained by saying this event is in the book therefore it has to be in the film he can let his own imagination run wild so do you want to give a quick a quick run through of what the the basic plot the basic genesis we played the trailer but give us a basic genesis of what this film is okay i'll do it without my trailer voice because it's not good and nobody wants to hear that so the film it follows a, a lady called mima who is in a Japanese idol group called Cham. I didn't yep. look up what Cham could have meant. I'm sure, yep. I'm sure it's got some kind of meaning, but they're a fairly successful group. They have a fairly diehard fan base. More on that later. But she wants to leave the group because she wants to become an actress. She feels yep. kind of burned out by this pop idol life. She wants to go and become an actress. This goes down very poorly with her fans, even like her manager, even people who support her. They don't want her to do this. She moves into basically starring in like soaps, like Japanese soaps. And because this goes down so badly with the fan base, 
a stalker appears. There, she starts to get these threatening messages. It feels like people are out to get her. And as a result of that, her slow, her sanity slowly begins to slip as the film goes on. And that's the crux of the film, this breaking from reality, almost like she's two people. Now, we're talking about idol culture there. And I think it's quite specific to Asian culture, Japanese culture. And I think it's been almost appropriated by South Korea as well. Especially with you know, K-pop. K-pop, J-pop. Yeah. Etc. So, what is idol culture? You know, you have to contextualize the post-war Japan. Post-war Japan, you know, Hiroshima happened. You know, Oppenheimer. It's yeah. a buzz film at the moment. Yeah. So, in that wake, we had this these companies who would manufacture stars. They would be companies that would groom preteens and teenagers into future stars. Now, idols. Japanese idols, for example, they're not necessarily professionals. Mm. You kind of graduate into professional status. Mm -hmm. But these guys, these girls, would simmer there. They'd build a fan base. They would be manufactured, as we said. They would be put together. Very much, and I suppose a Western equivalent, would you say, was almost American Idol? Yeah, that kind of thing, yes. That kind of thing where it's manufactured, it's brought together, it's very... Artificial, would you say? Yeah, that kind of thing, like, you should do this to impress people, you should do this, you should say this, you should not say this, etc., etc. Right. And it came up, kind of, 50s, 60s, 70s, what's called the so-called age of idols, when you think the country was maybe looking for kind of heroes, and they got it from, like, their cartoon characters. So these Japanese idol groups, it was usually singers and dancers. I think those were the two, like, basic prerequisites to be in these groups. And they would all dress very similar. You would have costumes like cartoon characters, like Sailor Moon, for example, or video game characters like Tifa Lockhart from Final yep. Fantasy VII. Schoolgirls is another big one, because when you think of Japanese stereotypes, you think of the schoolgirl. It's almost the first one of the first images that comes into your head. So them being dressed like that, you instantly recognize them when you picture them on a stage singing and dancing. When I earlier referred to, you know, this Japanese consumerist culture almost being the American consumers' culture on steroids. Yeah. I think this is playing into that. Within this culture, and I, I, I've watched documentaries on it, there is a lot of toxicity involved. Yeah. <laughs> you see a lot of very young teenage girls, for example, being idolized and over-worshipped by you know, middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. and, and there can be a relatively creepy culture around that. And you don't have to look far to find it, because when I was researching this, if you tap, type Japanese idol culture into Google, yeah. you know what the second result yeah. is, second suggestion? Japanese idol culture is toxic. That is the second thing that comes up. I read Reddit threads, I was reading articles online, I was reading like forums. It's pretty scary how these people are treated. It's it's almost like it's almost like they're slaves, like they're slaves to a master and the master is like the big businesses, the managers who own them. Now, does this play into what Satoshi Kon was hinting at within this film? Because his other film after this, Millennium Actress, would all also have a female protagonist and he explained this because he was interviewed and somebody asked him why does both of your films have a female protagonist and he said this may seem meaningless but it does mean something it's because female characters are easier to write with a male character i can only see the bad aspects <laughs> because i'm a man i know very well what a male character is thinking even if he is supposed to be very cool i can see this bad side of him that makes it very difficult to create a male character. Hmm. So even from that opinion, you know, we're steeped in Japanese culture here. 
that's a weird, a slightly off-kilter sentence. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's generalizing here to think he can eat more easily write a female character because it's more unknown to him. In a sense, but I also find it very apropos for the story itself right. because we have this female protagonist and these groups, they tend to have female members. There's one band actually called AKB48. It's got over 90 members. Why is that? What? So they, they can perform gigs simultaneously. It's in the Guinness World Record books for most members in a band. They can perform bands simultaneously they can keep up busier schedules because these are incredibly popular and he says we've got these female protagonists you watch this film most of the fan base are male mm. so that's the interesting thing when you say about he sees the you know he knows the worst in the male fans i think that was a choice to make most of his fans male especially the bad ones male funnily enough he was asked he says is this film a criticism of idol culture he said i would be embarrassed to, if somebody thought it was a criticism of idol culture but i think you know if as a fan of this film if you want to kind of an, uh, analyze it there is a lot of criticism for idol culture within this film. The thing is, watching the film back, I'm not sure what positive aspects does it demonstrate of it because idol singers, like in real life, this is not just in the film, in real life they're known to be harassed by fans, angry letters, all the typical death threats, the kind of crap that you see banded around on, you know, online because people have that, they have the anonymity online. Like People online are not going to say the kind of things to somebody they would actually say to their face. But because you're behind a computer screen, it's much easier. There was a former idol called uh, Mayu Tomita. She was stabbed 37 times by an obsessed fan. Do you know why the fan did that? Why? Because he sent a gift to her and she sent it back. And he'd been sending her death threats prior to this. So it wasn't like a spontaneous thing. He'd stalked her, he'd sent her death threats, then he did that. That is the real toxic side to this idol culture. And I think that plays into this film especially because we, you know, we have this contrast because it's a psychological deep dive. We have the real Mima and she sees this virtual Mima, this apparition, so to speak. And we have this duality at plague because the real Mima, she's gone from this J-pop band into acting and she's made to do, you know, a rape scene, for example, mm. or a salacious photo shoot. And then we have our virtual self the one she sees, this apparition, so to speak, and it is the one who is still continuing in the in the J-pop group. And we see this tug between the intention of the artist and what the artist really wants to do. How much are they placating what they think they have to do to become ahead of the game, and how much is them themselves? And I think that kind of works. And I think... This is important when we're speaking, even in a contemporary setting with social media, the avatar we play, mm. what we play to an audience. We are different online, for example, to what we are in real life. Everything is a, a veneer, an aesthetic that we put forward to represent ourselves, and it, nece and it isn't necessarily that. And Mima is expressing that within this film herself because, funnily enough, in this film, she has to be taught how to use the internet. Yes. Which I thought was quite a funny scene. It is a funny scene. Oddly, it's an eerily prescient scene as yeah. well because the internet, because we're talking, this was written in the 90s, made in 1997, it yep. was released. It wasn't that mainstream then. It wasn't in everybody's home like it is now. And uh, some characters are talking about the internet coming up and one character says, that's really popular lately. Yep. Like, they'd have no idea how it would actually affect in the future. I'm curious, when was the first time you got the internet? When did you log on for the first time? Actually, at home, not at school or primary school or whatever. It would have been, I think, 
2000, 2001, because that's the How fir- old were you then? I don't know. Uh, 10 or 11, because that's when we got our first PC that in the, the first household. Time? That would have been the first time, I'm yeah. sure the first time I got a home, it was a huge big desktop as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm sure I was about 14. Yeah. yeah, and it's the kind of internet where it took forever to do anything. Dial-up, dial-up. Exactly, with those horrible noises, yeah. which are kind of nostalgic now. It's the kind of thing where you look back and think, oh, imagine those noises listening to that. But you would like, you would never want to go back to that. I was going to say, how many how many Zoomers, Wayne, do you think are nostalgic <laughs> for that noise? How many times do you think they, oh, I would love a dial-up? It's like, no, you would not. No, it's the kind of thing that comes on, you think, you kids will never understand. Here, here, <laughs> right. 14 years old. He was a 14-year-old Liam, 15-year-old, yeah. <laughs> however old I was, right? On dial-up, it was going non-stop. I downloaded Terminator 3 for the first time when it came out. Do you know how long it took me? This is dial-up, people. This is yeah. how long it took. That would have taken you weeks. A week. A fucking week <laughs> to download a film. I tried to download one of the Resident Evils. It actually took so long and was going so slowly, I just gave up. It wasn't even a few percent complete. I'm like... This isn't even worth it. That, it was, that is how bad the internet and dial-up was in the early 2000s. But it's great a film like this can actually almost kind of see that because within this film, the internet kind of baffles Mima. And I like how her reaction to it because someone's set, trying to set up the internet and she explains it in not a very clear way. And she says to Mima, does that make sense? And Mima laughs and says, no, not at all. Because for a lot of people, the internet is like, it's still kind of an enigma. A lot of folks still don't understand how to use it. And at one point, Mima is actually advised to use use the internet less because <laughs> because of the stalking and because of the threats that's actually very very good advice and i don't think it's like they didn't realize how much more important that vo- that advice would be later like in our modern world so what is the name of our stalker i've got mamuro what are you going with mamania mamania mamuro so this stalker <laughs> he is you know, he's visually, you know, he's quite aesthetically unpleasing. He's grotesque. He, he, he fulfills our idea of what a stalker possibly would like, an obsessive mm. would possibly look like. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's into that, the film The Fan, King of Comedy. You know, yeah. we're, we're in that trope, we're in that world of the obsessive, so to speak, Travis Bickle in many aspects. Exactly, the kind of person who, when they pop up on the news, the mugshots, oh, what a pathetic loser, etc. This person dedicated to their life to this, you know, to this band, whatever. It's these fans who make the thing they are fans of, they make it their whole identity. It's not enough just to like it. You have to attach your whole persona to it. You, you become build, yeah. what you like. Exactly, right. yeah. But in a kind of negative way, in a destructive way, because that thing can't change then because you've attached yourself to it. And I think that is visualised in this film. When we see the stalker's bedroom, it is covered by pictures of Mima. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got this prophetic guy. He's got pictures of Mima all over. And I was trying to draw illusions here, okay. Now... We like to analyse, we like to draw parallels between films we contextualise into contemporary culture. And I was thinking, okay, what is this? And this isn't a film I'm necessarily hyped about, but a lot of people are. You know, Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Now, people have, for whatever reason, they have a lot of opinions over Greta Gerwig at the moment. Whether she has A, sold out, and mm-hmm. they have become almost possessive about her. And they think they know her, they know her intentions, and they want to say, look, Greta Gerwig is selling out, this is the girl who was in Greenberg, Hannah takes the stairs, Francis Ha. And we almost feel a collective possessiveness over her. And we've got to realise, and I think this is what this film is saying, the Greta Gerwig we all think we know, you know, star of Francis Ha, etc. That's an avatar. 
Mm-hmm. She she's playing a part. Yes, exactly. So what is happening on the the Twitter Twitterverse, the internet, etc., is there's a certain possessiveness around Gerwig that she has to fulfill a role, and now she has deviated from that role, and she has made Barbie. It is almost like she has let us down. Mm. But none of us knew Gerwig from the start. And I think that parallel perfectly fits into this film. It does, because we're portraying fans here, and you ask them, are they really fans? They're more like selective fans, because they only like a certain person when they're doing what they want. You have a selection of fans who, I think they're there to as kind of a microcosm of the larger negative fan base, because they love Mima as a pop star. They love her in Cham. They're obsessed with her. They buy her albums, they buy photos, autographs, etc. But when she leaves that life, suddenly they're not doing what they like her to do in the first place so it's like this is like a betrayal that's what it's like they don't want her to do that anymore you want to go off and do this smutty soap opera that's not who you are that's not the Mima I love as if they think they know who she is and as if they have any actual control over what she does look if you want to buy her albums you don't want to buy her albums that's totally fine she wants to go in this direction she can do that but they take it personally this Mimania he's sitting there he's this grotesque looking creature which obviously very important visually he's covered his He's covered his room in all these pictures of her. He buys, at one point, all these magazines because she's posing nude in it. And he's I'm, way too old for this. Exactly, like, he's, he's way too old. He's this. not 14. Yeah. This is a grown-ass man. Yeah, and he doesn't talk very much. He does at one point, but at one point, he like it's like a prank call. He just does heavy breathing. A lot of what he does feels like it was kind of put together from actual famous people's negative experiences like the death threats and the creepy phone calls and you know the kind of things that like the, he creates a fan page for her where he can essentially just manipulate and make Mima feel like he's gaslighting her making her feel a certain way well can you remember obviously this is way before our time but the the furor over Jodie Foster being in Taxi Driver yeah. and she got the stalker and Martin Scorsese had death threats how 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 could you dare do this to Jodie Foster etc etc we're following that line of thought yeah and that got so serious a guy tried to kill the president of the country because of that to impress Jodie Foster John Hinckley so yep. it's not like this is benign people can do actual horrible things and this film really demonstrates that fights break out there's all these threats going on bodies start piling up so it's people who take this seriously to a ridiculous degree now let's play devil's advocate okay mm. we know this stalker we've psychologically profiled him he's pathetic he's he's possessive of an ideal rather than a person mm-hmm. now Mima in this film she's also conflicted she's also in many regards being possessed by those she works for her agent her manager the people in the film she doesn't necessarily want to do the rape scene mm-hmm. she doesn't necessarily want to do the the nude photo shoot mm-hmm. so is it is it a lost lost situation for an artist and and this is where the the identity and the the nature of identity becomes even more important does an artist have a true identity or are they merely the facilitation of either the the spectator or the pr people and the the management side of things the problem is that persona is what you present to the public so that's what they expect of you right. it's like you hear those stories where people have encountered celebrities and they say oh this person was incredibly rude this person was a dick this and that 
the problem is they're thinking of them as what they see on the screen and here on records. They're not considering them as human beings. At one point, Mima goes into the place where the studio where she's shooting the show and these photographers trying to get photos of her try to talk to her but she's very rattled about what's happened and she runs in and one of the photographers says do they all get unfriendly when they become actresses this guy doesn't know anything about her personally doesn't know what's been happening but he kind of imagines he does it's the paparazzi and the wider public treating them just as a famous figure like the kind of object of their imagination not considering what they're like on a human level and that that betrayal of they're not doing this anymore i don't like them right you become an object you become in a, in a sense a barbie doll yeah and you said about the whole being caught between the two lives it did feel to me like a very rock and a hard place situation she wants to leave this pop band where she's had moderate success we'll say because yep. at one point she says we didn't even crack the, you know the charts or anything they weren't even in the top 100 until she left they become a duo rather than a threesome and i think they got to a number eight because this was saying idol culture is not necessarily about being professional because in Japan, there are some who askew the whole idol culture and they just want to be known as professionals. Mm-hmm. Right. But her leaving that band, that's what led them to success. So she's left the band, they've become successful. But she's going to this other career now, which she's never done before, and it's not really working out and it's causing a backlash. So it is stuck in a very odd situation. It kind of piles the pressure on it. I like how they do make Mima a very sympathetic character. For example, when she discovers Chammer doing really well yep. in her absence, she's not bitter, she's not yep. resentful. She's like, that's fantastic. That's great. She never says a word against Cham. She's trying to move on from them. But her imaginary self, she's still picturing herself within Sham as the huge J-pop success. Yeah, because that's so like... is is her, is her internal self? Maybe her, you know, her external self is like, oh yeah, I'm happy for them. But her internal self is like, oh my god, what the hell did I do? I needed to be in that band. That is what I should have been doing. But my agents, my managers, they pressured me into this career move, which they said would would be the next best step. But in my heart of hearts, I knew I should have been in that band. What I felt was this second Mima that's floating around, constantly taunting her. She is like a physical manifestation of the expectations placed on her by her manager because they wanted to do this this acting role. They wanted to be a dramatic actress, which comes with a lot of inherent risks because she's leaving behind this group that goes on to become much more successful but they're constantly pressuring her she says at one point the pop idol life is suffocating me so that's why she wants to move on to this other job there's probably moments where she wanted maybe to go back to it but she's wanting to move forward but she's facing so much backlash not just from the band but from her manager as well who is constantly pressuring her it's like she can't ever catch a break whatever she tries to do and i think that places what we're talking about into the concept you know the native american concept that every time you take a photograph you're essentially stealing someone's soul yes well um, one of the great motifs, the visual motifs in this film is the extensive use of cameras. Uh, Mima is being extensively photographed and it's like every time she has been photographed, we are taking something from her. She is losing a part of her identity every time a picture, a camera or something is capturing her essence, her soul, so to speak. And I think that kind of proverb, that Native American saying that every photograph takes part of your soul, it feeds into this. And I think that is what it is on about. Every time you're in the public light, you lose a part of yourself because you become an avatar, you become an expectation, you play a role, you do things you may not want to do because you are fulfilling a role that is determined for you by somebody else and when you think about it in our modern life where everybody's got a camera on the phone everybody makes videos on their phone 
it's stripping that pub that that persona away, so you can just see the actual public figure. You don't see them as this great grand actress or singer or whatever. The more you take a photo, the more you see them as a human being. And it's annoying where photographers will take photos of celebrities on you know not working, just like taking out garbage or whatever like that. Oh, look at how they're dressed, etc. Like they can't actually just be themselves. They have to be this figure all the time, the figure in the public eye. Well, Con himself, he was asked, like, what is this film actually on about? And he said, look, he said, I simply wanted to show the process of a young girl maturing, becoming confused because her old set of values gets shattered, but who is reborn as a mature being as a result of that. That's what I wanted to describe. And I think that's what it is about. It's about this transgression, this transforming into something, whether that's a positive or a negative. She becomes something that she wasn't there previously. And it's like, as the thing goes on, it's like less and less she knows who she is because she's constantly torn between these two lives. She can't go back to that life. She wants to work on this one. And the acting thing seems to be going well, but all of these things that are going on around her, it's kind of tearing away at her sanity. She has a hard time distinguishing between what's real and what's fantasy, you know, to try to work out who she really is. Well, at the same time, she's been manipulated by this character. I think it's her agent or manager called Rumi. Yes. And there is this duality between her virtual self it's usually referred to and Rumi and they almost become one in the same Mm -hmm. and is Rumi the one pulling the strings is she the one manipulating her career is she the one you know contributing to her psychological decline well, she is the one that tries to kind of back her up and say, don't worry about this. We get that cliche all the time whenever Mima goes through something horrible. Mima's like, just just smile. Just keep smiling. Constantly putting a brave face in it. Because Rumi, the idea is she was a pop idol before. She should understand this. She should understand the pressures of fame, the negative side of fame, which is being extensively depicted here. So the fact that she can just say, oh, you know, just slap a brave face on it, it's kind of insulting to, to Mima. It's like she doesn't really care about her. What this film was drawing with me and what kind of got me thinking is, is there a conflict between the role an artist plays, for example, an actor, and the identity they have? Once you do, you know, the salacious photograph, you do the rape scene, for example, does that become your identity? And I think a lot of actors get trapped in this. It's becoming quite common, you know, an actress, for example, will not have they'll have a non-nudity clause in their film because mm. they want, don't want to be typecast. So, in many regards, are we, dis- are we saying that if an actor plays a certain role, if they're typecast in a certain role, does that become their avatar? Does that become their public persona? Can we not no longer distinguish them between themselves and a role? For example, famously, you know, Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Yeah. Is she always going to be Catherine Trammell to, you know, the audience? Is she going to be the ice-cold serial killer? Can she, can she transgress that? Can she get past that? And, I mean, this film, you know, is deceptively simple, deceptively not simple in many regards. It's a very conflicted film. Is that what it's discussing? Can we get past the artist and the artist's work? Or do they become one in the same? Can you make a work of art? You know, like, let's draw this illusion, okay? For years, Woody Allen was making a similar film. Yeah. He was making films about uh, an urbanite, middle-aged intellectual who would fall in love, for example, with a, a young woman. Mm-hmm. And then obviously it came out that he was possibly engage with salacious acts himself to be kind i'm just saying i don't want to get into the nitty-gritty <laughs> yeah but 
can we separate art from the artist? Can we separate Rome Plansky from his personal life? Can we separate these things? Well, with actors, for example, you should be able to because they're not playing themselves on screen. At least they shouldn't be. They're playing characters. Right. And that's the problem is that that's the persona that people see. You see on the big screen and assume that's who they are, especially when you say about being typecast, especially if you play the same role over and over again. Woody Allen even said himself, he's nothing like the characters he plays on screen. Well. <laughs> the, the kind of nerdy, frebbish kind yeah. of guy, the kind of wee- weedy dude. But you talk about non-nudity clauses. That's an important element as well because when Mima starts doing... It's double blind. Double yeah, bind. Double bind the show. She starts doing this show. It calls for more salacious material. Yep. There's rape scenes. Yep. She starts getting photographed nude. These make it into magazines. Yep. People use words like dirty and tarnished. Yep. Tarnished is a word that comes up a lot because she's tarnished this clean-cut image from being in this pop idol group. But then again, if you had an art who wasn't going to do that had no nudity clauses for example people like oh they're just a prude or they're not willing to sacrifice it for the art what's wrong with them why aren't they willing to go all the way well that well that's exactly what i was meaning when i was drawing parallels you know roman plansky and his personal life now you're probably thinking or the audience might be thinking well look that's personal life professional life that's not a mix but this is the parallel i was drawing when sharon stone played Catherine tramell in basic instinct she had social workers who were trying to take away her kids precisely because they saw her as that role. Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm saying. And of course, they're thinking, okay, this is a salacious role. She must be an unfit mother, etc. And this is what I'm saying within the eyes of a certain person. Do you get typecast to the point where you become the role you play akin to a Roman Plansky and his personal life? And I think there is a point in that. I think we're becoming more savvy now and people are saying, look, we we can obviously tell the difference. But, you know, in the UK here, soaps are big over here, Mm -hmm. whether that's Emmerdale, Coronation Street, EastEnders. And if they're playing a bad guy, a bad woman on the soap, they can get abuse on the streets. Yeah. Which is what I'm saying. There is a certain percentage of people who cannot separate the art from the artist. I think in a way that has that is something social media has helped with because so many actors and actresses, singers, etc., because they have Twitter, you get to see what they're actually like because they're posting, you know, what they're doing in their day-to-day life. So you get a taste of what they're really like. The actor who played the killer Scorpio in the first Dirty Harry, it was bad for him as well because he was played the villain and he was he was a killer. He was very the actor was very anti-gun. He was very nervous about being around guns but because of the person he played he got death threats i think he almost had to go into hiding at one point so it's this public's inability to separate the actual person on screen from the person who they are who they are in real life do you think we're becoming more savvy now i hope so i'd like to think i so. would hate if we were it's hard to think folk are this dumb but you, <laughs> you say this but does it just shift gears we're becoming more savvy i mean most people were quite savvy to start yeah. with. I'm on about the, the, the few idiots. But it's like with the, the whole Instagram generation, mm-hmm. they, they, they see the facade of a glamorous life and then they feel they're missing out. Mm-hmm. So have we just placated and removed it from the film world and it's moved over to social media? I think in a sense, yeah, because you have so many influencers, a big word you hear now, people who post photos of the things they do in their everyday life, and people aspire to that, they idolise that. And if those those people were to go against 
what these fans wanted, there would be some kind of a backlash. So it's like they're only satisfied as long as the person is doing what they want. And this led to another question I got from the film. Is this film trying to say that within these fan bases, these toxic fan bases, or any kind of fan base, the only acceptable reaction has to be extremely positive or extremely negative? Because it's like online, no one wants to hear a middle-of-the-road reaction. No one wants a meh reaction. This thing has to be the best thing ever or it has to be the worst thing ever. Maybe because those draw the most headlines, because those get the most people talking, but you see fans in this film, oh, this is dreadful, this is awful. Oh, she's a slut, she's a whore, she's tarnished her reputation, she's dirty now. It has to be that extreme one way or the other. And sadly, have you noticed it's always women who are the point of the ire, which makes this film even more pertinent. I think Simon Pegg had a decent article you know he was referencing nerd culture and i think he's kind of backed away from doing sci-fi type roles Mm -hmm. because of the toxicity of the of the sci-fi world I think it's a sp- it almost seems especially bad there. You take like your Star Wars fan bases. Mm. I've spoken to Star Wars fans who say they're almost ashamed to admit they are in the Star Wars fan base because every time a new movie comes out, every time a new character is cast, every time a new TV show is released, there is some kind of backlash. Sometimes it feels inevitable. Like there's always going to be someone who's not happy with this, not happy with this. Things can't always be the way you want. Do we blow our audience's mind here, Wayne? I think we should. Neither, neither of us really like Star Wars. Not really, no. Neither no. of us are big Star Wars Do you know who fans. else doesn't? Who, who else? Gaspar Noe. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. I don't think he's like a very big superhero fan doesn't either. Like, oh. well, he, do, he doesn't like uh, Star Wars. He yeah. doesn't like Black Panther. Now, he, he was recently... Well, I think it was a few years ago. He was quoted as saying, if Americans... I am paraphrasing here. If Americans are so hell-bent on going towards stupidity, I suppose Marvel fills that role. Yeah. Do you think... Actually, this brings up an interesting question. Do you think that toxic fan bases, negative fan bases who react like this, can actually put you off something? Like, you don't want to be a fan of something because the fans of it really put you off. It came up with the band One Direction. When the one band One Direction were huge... You were a big fan of? No, I'm <laughs> I remember walking past a shop and the merchandising was ridiculous. They were on towels, they were on lunchboxes, on mugs, they were on all kinds of things. And the fan base would react very negatively to any kind of criticism, right. whether it was an album or something in their personal lives. I think for a lot of people, that puts them off following that band, following that actor, following that film or following that franchise because they're just so disgusted by people, how people react or overreact to everything they don't like. See, I think this as well, and I think, you know, if our listeners aren't on our Twitter already, we kind of, you know, we, we, we rail against hype. Yeah. You know, we, we like to think of an objective view. That's kind of our goal with In Film We Trust, you know, trying to analyse things, contextualise works. You know, we never want to be the guy who stands for something. <laughs> we don't want to be a stan. You know, it's like, it's, I can't remember the whole Johnny Depp debacle. Yeah. And there's people like ruining their reputations to defend him, mm. for example. And I have no quill in the game here. I don't care if he's guilty or innocent. That's fucking his business. Mm. But um, people would sacrifice their whole dignity, their whole <laughs> public persona to defend or detract from him. And they don't know him. They know that this is what I'm saying. This is what the film fulfills. You, you, you know an avatar of him. Mm. Nobody knows. None of us know Johnny Depp. 
Not for example, we're, not personally, we're, no. we're using as a, him as an example. Mm. We don't know what he's like in his personal life. I'm not mm. going to sit here and defend him. I don't know what he does from nine to five during the day. <laughs> I don't know what he's like when he, you know, we saw that pictures. I don't know what he's like on two lines of cocaine and half yeah. a bottle of whiskey. Exactly. But it's that inconsistency of, for example, if one celebrity has done something horrible, but you're a fan of them, yeah. well, it's more acceptable. But if this celebrity has done something kind of bad, but you were never a fan, that's worse. It's just whoever you are supporting. You need celebrity detachment. Mm, I think so. You can't get too close to celebrity because you don't know them. And I think that's important. And I think that's what is kind of the theme of this film is getting. The, the people you are viewing on the screen, the people you are seeing on the cinema, the people you're seeing in bands, on films, on whatever media you subscribe to, they are people. They are fulfilling a role when you see them on the TV. That is purely the creation of a PR team. Mm. You don't know these people. <laughs> Back off. Just just see the work from an objective point of view. That's it. Because we're still kind of living in that age of celebrity, that age of celebrity worship. And with social media, it brings them kind of closer together, also kind of further apart as well. And I like how these public figures, they're kind of using social media to distance themselves from that persona you see on screen. It's hard for people to detach those. And I think that's what the movie does probably the best of anything else. That showing that the two personas because Mima has kind of her personas splitting as the film goes on. In fact, you could draw parallels from this film to Persona by Ingmar Bergman. I love that film. Fantastic. Did you like film. that film? I love that film. I like yes. Bergman. Yeah. It's so well done, and the visuals how it showed how you'd have like the overlapping faces, how she was having trouble distinguishing whether it was whether she was herself the nurse or whether she was the other yep, woman, yep. the actress. And this film does exactly the same thing. Like she go, she kind of goes back and forth. She doesn't know who she is. There's a lot of sequences where you think something's real. Oh no, she was acting out in the TV show. A photographer approaches at one point, and she's he's asking to, oh, would you like a modelling work? And you think, a bit creepy. That's a show in the film. And that and that used to happen all the time. Was it Manuel Seeger, um, Roman Polanski's wife, the French actress? And she said, and she was commenting on the Me Too movement, and she said, look sex back then it wasn't as dark as it's portrayed now it there was a transactional point of view to it she said she partook in it as well if you wanted a movie role if you wanted a magazine role you slept for example with the photographer now i hope i hope we've moved past that because you don't want that in in the personal setting that is not <laughs> that's not good behavior man <laughs> It's not good for anyone except for the sleazy bastard who's offering right. the role to you. We'd like to think we got past that, but with with Mima, the people surrounding her, you get the feeling there are people who would who would do things like that, who would manipulate her in those ways. And it's almost like who's worse, those people who are manipulating her or the fans who are who are calling her betrayer, who are calling her dirty and tarnished. Do you know what I saw? And I recognized this before I even knew it. Darren Aronofsky, mm. his terrific film, Requiem for a Dream. There is a direct shot, and I never knew this, there's a direct shot of Mima in the bath. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a she's kind of... She's face down. Face down, she's sulking, she's quite down and out. She's in the bath, it's an above head shot, mm. and he uses this shot in Requiem for a Dream. And not only that, and I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to stump for this film, Black Swan, Aronofsky's mm. Black Swan. I think that is one of the best horror films of the entire 2000s. I love that film so much. And I don't think it's a coincidence within Black Swan, 
the main character is called Nina. Yeah. It's quite close to Mima. And there is the dual personality, the split personality, the illusion, the reality. Mm -hmm. We're mixing all these elements. And there was an interview at one time between Aronofsky and Satoshi Kon. And Aronofsky was displaying his reverence for Perfect Blue. Mm Mm-hmm. And it feeds into Aronofsky's work. He said he wasn't directly influenced by Perfect Blue for Black Swan. I don't know if that's true. There's a lot of similarities there. There are very similarities. We're trying to draw parallels there. Very similarities. I mean, you look at something like Black Swan. I love that film. We're both big Aronofsky fans. Yeah. I think I, I think I like pretty much every film of his I've ever seen. The Wrestler, Requiem for a Dream Pie, the, Black Swan, of course. The Whale, Ma- the whale, the whale was good. The Whale. I enjoyed uh, The Whale, yeah. The Wrestler. The Wrestler no, the was a wrestler. fantastic film. That was a great comeback from Mickey Rourke. Uh, Noah? Mm, yeah, uh, <laughs> did not see Noah actually. Have you done something with Noah? No, but I feel the wrestler was a very different film for yeah. him. But with with Black Swan, we're talking about the two personalities. We talk about kind of you know black and white. That film is literally black and white. The Black Swan and the yeah, White yeah. Swan. How the dualities? Yeah, how Natalie Portman portrays one of them and how Mila Kunis portrays yeah. the other one, and how their personalities start to overlap. You do wonder at what point does it go from? Because Aronofsky did himself say it was. Ty West's favourite word, homage. Homage. But yeah, when does homage crossover? Yeah. Because that shot you're talking about in the bath, I watched a side-by-side comparison. There's for no, for a Dream. Look, yeah, there's no way you can look at those and think those weren't influenced from the angle to them both being one of the, like, protagonists in the bath to the fact they both scream with all the bubbles coming out of their mouth it's almost like a kind of it's almost like a live action remake well, shot well, well it's actually quite funny do you think some of these guys and i'm gonna throw quentin tarantino in here do you think they didn't anticipate the reach of the internet so they thought their references wouldn't necessarily be able to track back to where what they were referencing and people would think because these are big filmmakers or american filmmakers they wouldn't be able to draw the parallels of where they were bringing their influences from so you're thinking if they're watching a film which they consider to be quite underground then it's never going to get found out right like when uh, disney got in trouble when they made the lion king which was based on was it kimba the white lion something like that but then again even the wachow when they made The Matrix, it was kind of heavily indebted to Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell. Which is an anime from earlier. So it's do, you inter- think, do you think they're playing with that? I, th- I think it's interesting how these American filmmakers, they kind of borrow a lot from this these Japanese because it's very artistic. I yeah. think that's what it is because it's such a beautiful, unique style. That's why they like borrowing from it. Those interesting visuals that they use. And uh, I've seen an interview with Con. It wasn't the one you were talking about. He was speaking yep. with a Japanese interviewer, but they were showing that scene from Requiem for Dream in the bath alongside the scene from Perfect Blue. And the interviewer said, uh, uh, there are overlaps. And Con said, overlaps or a rip-off. Is that what he said? That's actually what he said. That's exactly how he said it. I think that fits into what we're saying. (laughs) I don't think these famous directors anticipated the reach of the internet. I don't think they did, no. But we have these kind of direct shots. Aronofsky says it was a homage. He said maybe it was a rip-off. It didn't (laughs) didn't sound like he held any ill will towards it because apparently Aronofsky wanted to... Purchased the American rights to Black. Uh, he did. To, per- to, he perf- did. to Perfect Blue. Apparently, the deal kind of fell through, and he made Requiem for a Dream instead. It would have been interesting seeing Aronofsky making that film kind of his own. But then again, because he did Black Swan, which explores very similar territory, basically kind of dissociative identity disorders. So how it's described. We, in many ways, can we say them paying homage, quote unquote, Sorry. ripping off? <laughs> <laughs> Have they highlighted the work of the filmmakers that were influenced by? Has there been a greater good, for example, by them displaying these scenes and now it coming out that they were influenced by them, etc.? 
has it drew people to genre cinema? Because I know Tarantino had a massive effect on cinema fans, going back to exploitation cinema, Asian cinema, for example, and cinema they maybe would have never checked out beforehand. So is there almost a give and take? Has there homages to be polite hmm. has it paid off for the film the the original filmmakers who made the original work well i think so because we mentioned bong joon ho earlier when he accepted his oscar for best director for parasite he even said he said quentin tantino when people in america weren't familiar with his films because yeah. tantino you know with his film festivals yeah. he would play bong joon ho's films yeah. so he introduced them to a wider audience so i think in a way having these shots having these homages to japanese films to animes i think it does introduce it to a wider audience and it's interesting if you are a fan of this anime in the first place because you can notice these parallels popping up in these american films for example, the Christopher Nolan film Inception, yep. which you know everyone still talks yeah. about to this day. It's what, 13 years old Do you now. Like it? I'm going- I, I really enjoy Inception. I, I like Inception. I like Inception as well. Khan made a film in 2006 called Paprika. Yeah, he's. Oh, yeah. I know where you're going. I know where <laughs> exactly. you're going. Uh, if you've not seen that film, it explores a device where people can share dreams and it follows a, quote, dream terrorist. Now, when you think about that, yep. elements of that clearly used is in Inception. I mean, this was only four years before. I know Nolan had the idea for Inception just after we did Insomnia, but wink, then he wink. shelved it. Yeah, but he shelved it because he didn't have an ex- if yep. enough experience at the time, but then he came back to it. It's not too far-fetched to say he probably borrowed some elements from I think that. So. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Exactly, like the visual style and like the actual storyline elements. But I think it's good because I think it does introduce it to an audience. It's a certain give-and-take culture. I think so. There is an appropriation. We, we can't deny that. But at the end of the day, ideas, they, you know, they shift back and forth between the mainstream and the underground, the cult, for example. And is there a give-take where the, the, the mainstream highlights the underground i th- i probably think so it's maybe not necessarily the most fair or egalitarian of ideas but there is a give and take mm. but i do think that these films being out there these american films being made that have homages to this japanese cinema i think if this introduces you to these films if you find out oh tarantino was influenced by this this director was influenced by this and it encourages you to go and watch these films films like perfect blue films like paprika like ghost in the shell like akira i think that's an advantage i think everybody wins because you were finding out about these films you wouldn't have known about beforehand i think so now i'm gonna throw it to you okay top three japanese films quickly japanese films i would have to have rashomon in there really yes i loved rashomon i did love grave of the fireflies as well if i could go with maybe another kurosawa film seven samurai as well not going tetsuo uh I don't know. I like Tetsuo. I wouldn't say I liked it as yeah. much as other ones. Drunken Angel as well is another very overlooked Kurosawa film I found. Yeah. I would maybe even have Audition in there as well because Audition was I love fantastic. Audition. I love Audition. And Ring as well. Like I've seen the American remake. Good. Hey, the, the American remake is quite good. It's pretty good. Not Ringu, but it's good. No, it kind of lacks that. It was kind of very gritty, dirty, dark kind of quality yeah, that Ring yeah. had as well. Yeah. Even in some scenes where it felt like it was made in like a homemade camcorder, it had horrible editing and it was like very grainy. That really added to the aesthetic. Okay, so what about you? What would you say are your top three oh, Japanese films then? Right. Now I'm a genre fan, Wayne. <laughs> yes. I love Battle Royale. Oh, Battle Royale, yeah. I love Battle Royale. Katano's Hanabai. Mm-hmm. I love that film also. Oh, I'm trying to... Okay, one more, <laughs> one more. I think they'd be in my top two. Maybe Rashomon. I think you've maybe got something there. I do like that. I, I have to 
stand here a bit for Brandon to kill. That's a great yeah. genre picture. Yes, too. and you're big on Takashi Mikey as well. Takashi Mikey, I love auditions. I think Visitor Q might be the only one. Uh, is it audition as well? I think Visitor Q and Audition are the two films of his. I've and seen. I've got to say, I know you didn't like it, but I'm going to say Sukumoto's Kotoko. Mm-hmm. I love that film. Great psychological study, and I do love Tetsuo also. So they are very impressive films, and while we have kind of differing opinions on some aspects of like Japanese cinema. We both really appreciate it. There are very distinct qualities to it that both of us admire. So what did you think overall? You know, we've discussed the... We've analysed Perfect Blue. We've given a run-through of the plot. I think it is an extremely strong film. Now, I don't think you have to be a fan of anime per se to like this film. Because I know you have issues with anime. You're not a big anime fan, are you? Not not overall, no. What, what's your big issue with it's it? It's maybe something about how a lot of the, even a lot of the films like Spirited Away or TV shows, I remember watching Naruto with some friends of mine from university. I just find them kind of baffling and confusing to the extent where I don't really want to see any more of them. Would you say it's too overly emotive? That might be it. It's, some, it's quite exaggerated. Some of it's too overwrought. There's too much like monologuing yeah, in a lot yeah, of places yeah. as well. I'm like, can we just get on with this kind of thing? But knowing that, you would still obviously recommend Perfect Blue. You you still stand for it to say. The reason Perfect Blue works so well is because it's a story and its themes there's things we can all relate to. It's a psychological deep dive, which we always love talking about. It's the fact it has a very likable lead character going through a very believable kind of crisis of self. And I like that. I like its very human qualities. It works for a lot. It doesn't matter the fact it's animated. I mean, you could maybe do a live action version of this. I think so, yeah. But the fact it's animated, you get the more vivid colours, you get the more kind of interesting artwork. I think it works great there as well. There are kind of more possibilities there, but it works so well because the story is so good. The visuals are so good. The way they show the dissociation of personality is so good. It works on all of those levels, and that's why I think it's a great film. And it's obviously very critical of fan culture. I think it's hard to say it shows any positive aspects of it. There really (laughs) aren't very many, to be honest. But it's a scathing criticism of this idol culture, which maybe some people don't know too much about. But if you read into it, it's pretty messed up. Well, it's a completely polemic film. It's trying to make a point. It's very Hitchcockian. It's very visual. This guy comes from a history of the visual arts, whether it's illustration, whether it's painting whether it's manga as he was associated with and all them influences bleed through we can see a through line between his genesis how he got this film how he was in a sense underqualified for this film because it was direct to video but it became a cinematic release and we can see all this input we can see all these machinations behind the scene and we can see the importance of the piece it's a commentary on 1997 but even more than a commentary on 97 it's pertinent to this day and i think it makes a bigger statement on the contemporary culture than it ever did in 97 and that is why i think this is a solid gold perfect anime perfect film and it's a perfect subject for a psychological deep dive it's a movie all about shattering the illusion and separating the public persona from the personal life but why is this a concept so foreign to so many if you have an idea let us know on our social media but for now i'm wayne i'm liam you've been listening to episode 57 of in film we trust join us next time where we discuss dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream